Hang on, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shah and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. And it's 2017. Uh, we, we, I will say this up front. The, uh, the inauguration was, as we were recording this hours earlier, I and everyone else I know didn't watch it. It's not interesting anymore. Uh, it was it was this odd thing of going from being a complete news junkie during the campaign to not wanting to see any news anymore at all. So I'm not really worried about anything. I think that's wonderful, though. I think it's a very, and I hope you won't be offended with that. It's a very privileged position to take. You're feeling a, safe. Ab- absolutely. You know, uh, I look at it from the perspective of, I suppose, someone who's far away but in a world that it, where it seems everything is turning in directions that I don't really approve of, shall we say. You know, from mm-hmm. Brexit to Australian politics, which wouldn't be familiar to our, most of our listeners, to what's happening in the United States, which is deeply concerning, and how it looks like we're moving from a period of relative enlightenment to a darker period for the next four to ten years. I think that's true. You mentioned Australian politics, but you could mention French politics. You could mention even the right wing in Germany, which still has a liberal democratic government, uh, is under, uh, under siege. So, so this movement, which the United States is now the flagship for, I guess, is a worldwide movement. And it's, it's distressing all the way around. It is. But as long as you mention that, uh, I was thinking because one of the novels I've been reading, um, and, and, and enjoying, is a novel by our friend Cat Sparks okay. called Lotus Blue. Yep. And uh, and there there I, I I don't think that this is unconscious on her part at all. It's a far future Australia, and anything that's set in a far future desert in, the, in, in Australia now is going to is going to get somebody. The reviews, not me necessarily, are going to say Mad Max versus or Mad Max meets or sure. So, so between George Miller and Probably Terry Dowling with the rhinoceros story. Sure. This sort of bleak, desertified, brutal future uh, was given to us by Australian literature and film long before it became a reality throughout the world. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's actually become a reality. Second of all, I think the Dowling future was much more gentle than the ones that we see. Yes, it features a desertifi- desertified Central Australia, but it is a politically sensitive, uh, left-leaning kind of time. I think that uh, the futures of, say, Sean McMullen are a little bit more like it rather than the futures of Terry Dowling. And in fact, probably one of the most prescient futures for Australia probably happens in the back half of Greg Egan's debut science fiction novel, uh, Quarantine, where he talks about the... um, the, 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 you know, the construction of cities and the changes to the northern half of Australia, which mm. once you move out of um, Brisbane and move away from uh, the Northern Territory tends to be quite empty at the moment and desertified and quite harsh. Now, I've not read Lotus Blue from uh, Cat Sparks' new novel. I think it's coming out in March yet. But oh. I know it's primarily, well, I've been told, it's primarily a work of climate fiction. So that's what, that, that's what it's about. Well, I think it, it, it is that, and it's set in a in a more a near term future than 
the Terry Dowling things. I mean, the Terry Dowling things, in a sense, can afford to be a little bit more gentle because they're set in a very distant future. They are. They're, they're almost a, a dying earth fantasy kind of science fiction. Really? Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's, there, when you go far enough in the future, uh, you don't read current politics into it as much. You don't do that with Gene Wolfe. You don't do it with Terry Dowling. You don't deal, do it with Jack Vance. Um, the mid, and, and, and then you get the sort of mid-range future, which is uh, probably about the location. I've not figured out the, the, the dates um, of Cat Sparks' novel, but there are allusions in it that even I recognize the things like that big uh, dish antenna somewhere in some remote area that was the subject of a movie. Par- uh, you, mean, you, mean the, you, mean the, you mean the Parks Observatory in New South Wales? That's Victoria, it. Yeah. Well, Everybody else in the world thinks of it as that big dish in Australia. Okay. For those of us who are astronomers, we think there's a big dish in, in Puerto Rico, there's a big dish in Australia, and there's something on a mountaintop in Hawaii. That's how non-astronomers view <laughs> the modern science of astronomy. Fair enough. That doesn't sound terribly analytical, but, but we can but go with mid, that. The, the mid-level future, that's interesting, because what... What I think may be happening, and I don't think we have enough science fiction in this new dark era, uh, or enough science fiction which has been written during this new darkened era to make this judgment just yet. But I'm wondering if the optimistic futures of science fiction are being pushed further into the future, and the mid-range future is kind of seen as almost not almost a dark age. That's an interesting idea, and I think it, it's quite plausible sounding, because it does feel as though we have a number of really significant, major, substantial problems to overcome before you can start imagining a positive, optimistic future. You know, I mean, I've not yet read a book that I think you have read, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, and I am going to read it before we talk about it on the podcast in any detail. But I know it's a climate change novel, and I know that Stan is primarily a an optimist about you know, a, a utopian when it comes to writing science fiction. Um, I would imagine that Cat's book is somewhat darker, much as Paolo Bacigalupi's book mm-hmm. is, is is darker. And similarly, you know, James Clay, you know, James Bradley's Clade, is a darker piece of you know fiction. It has a darker view yeah. of the world. As we face, you know, the impact of climate change. Now, I think well, I think what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happens in a novel like Clade is that we are watching it happen. That is, that is a novel of the decline. This novel of the disasters beginning to happen. So that's, in a sense, a, a, a relatively very near-term future. Uh, Stan Robinson's New York twenty-one forty. The the date pretty much says we're okay. We're more than a century in the future, and you're right. He is. In many ways, an idealist. Uh, he's he's doing this wonderful balancing act for most of his career now, and I, I I agree with those who say that he's probably the leading climate change or cli-fi I hate that term uh, writer in the world, and he's been this consistently. But there's always this aspect to Robinson's fiction that we can somehow pull this off, and it comes across in New York twenty one forty as well. There's there's a line in the novel. I mean, it's it's a. I, I think you'll be surprised, and I think a lot of readers will be surprised because it's not this panoramic overview that we saw in twenty three twelve, for example, uh, with lots and lots and lots of characters and things happening all over the solar system. It's a fairly intimate novel about a small group of characters 
most of them living in a building in New York, the MetLife Tower, which is there now and is a classic sort of uh, Venetian palace design to it, um, trying to make the best of what is a flooded New York. Flooded New York is a given. It's not something he's warning us about. He's simply saying, this is the best we can do with what we're going to have. And there, I think, is, is, is a fair amount of optimism. And the danger with this kind of fiction, I think, and it's the danger with a lot of catastrophic fiction, is that it's so interesting. I mean, it's kind of cool. You keep the, there's actually a line in the novel. There's, a, there's, there's a, a narrator. There's this kind of snarky, anonymous narrator simply called The Citizen. At one point says, New York had never been this interesting before. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. There's a part of you that thinks, oh, my God, New York has been flooded. You know, the, the lower Manhattan is underwater. And there's another part that thinks, this is cool. People are going around in canals and, 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 and vaping, uh, whatever they call these uh, yeah. uh, things that they used to get around to the canals with. So, so there's a danger of making a catastrophic future look like fun. Do you think there's a danger that we're going to see too many cozy catastrophes where the decline is something that you can comfortably get through? I think there are two ways of looking at it. And one is, one is, I think, what you get in Paolo Bacigalupi uh, and, and in James Bradley's play, um, which is, this is what it's going to look like when it happens, and that's awful. And life is going to be cheap and brutal and unpleasant and everything bad you can think is is going to happen. But then there's this second stage, which is the stage I see science fiction moving into now. The stage in which it doesn't do any good to warn against global warming or to warn against coastal flooding. That's a given. That's a default position for science fiction futures. And if you start from that default position, the question is, how do you make the best of that? Do you... I think that's, that's one of the themes in, in Stan Robinson's novel. Do you think that a lot of the fiction that is set in the far future that opts for more traditional military science fiction settings, that opts for more traditional epic fantasy settings, is simply avoiding the subject? I don't think it's avoiding the subject because it's hasn't always been a subject. In other words, you mentioned Jack Vance, and when he was writing the Dying Earth stories back in the 40s, uh, he was not... What people were concerned about then was nuclear war. They weren't concerned about the world just going to hell in a handbasket. So I think that genre has always been there. And I think it's always been a way of either avoiding the issue or treating the issue in a purely metaphorical way. Fair enough. So we're basically going to have, we're going to have in March, it is two major works of new climate fiction in New York 2140 and in Lotus Blue by Cat Sparks, which is great. Looking forward to those. What else have you been up to, old son? Uh, the other one I'm looking forward to, and I can't, I shouldn't say anything because I haven't finished it yet. There's a new substantial novel from John Kessel called The Moon and the Other. I envy uh, that. Which is another moon colony novel. And it's interesting. I, it, I'm, I'm really trying to put this out of my mind because I know John has been working on this for years. He's been, he started working on it way back before Ian McDonald did his Moon Colony novel. It's nothing like Ian McDonald's Moon Colony no. novel. What it is is based on, it's not really based on, but it's set in essentially the same moon as his uh, Tiptree winning story, Stories for Men, and 
a series, a cycle of other stories that came with that. Uh, so you've got two cities on the moon. One is Persepolis, which is kind of traditional, uh, somewhat Middle Eastern based, uh, urban sprawl with, um, a, a fairly traditional, fairly patriarchal, um, governance. And you've got, um, the Society of Cousins, which is the setting for stories for men and the others, which is a, a, a feminist society in which men are basically given all the creative freedom they want, but aren't allowed to vote. It was a very controversial story. It was, I was impressed that it got the tip tree because it raises all kinds of gender issues. And those gender issues are here as well. Um, and he's, he's a very intelligent writer. I'm glad to see him writing, finishing, I should say, another novel. Um, and he's got, I think, a collection of short stories coming out, if not this year, the next. He's also well progressed on the next novel. Excellent. Based on his story, was it Prometheus and Pride and Prometheus? Pride and Prometheus, yes. He's doing that into a novel, which should be out in 2018. Uh, yeah, next year. So I envy you getting to read the Kessel book. I've been wanting to get my hands on it for some time. Uh, I'm actually reading, as you would imagine, short fiction at the moment. Uh, I'm reading a novella for the Tor.com program and some other stories that I'm uh, editing. Uh, I'm currently reading Garth Nix's new novel, a very amusing and enjoyable, witty uh, young adult fantasy called Frog Kisser, which mm. comes out early next month and which is being turned into a major motion picture by the people who made Ice Age. Excellent. And it's not part of a series. No, it's not an Old Kingdom story at all. Uh, I mean, last year's Golden Hand, and there's reason to come back to Golden Hand later in the conversation for a couple, for a couple of reasons, uh, is, I think, probably going to be, my guess is, the last Old Kingdom novel for a little while. And so there's a couple of other things he's working on. I know that he's got a, uh, a swords and sorcery book coming out that he's co-written with Sean Williams called Have Sword Will Travel. And mm. uh, he has, obviously, uh, Frog Kisser, which looks great. And I've got a bunch of other things sort of piled up in my Kindle, but time is never never my friend, Gary. So also it doesn't help that I sit there mooning around, looking on travel sites for discount hotels and cheap flights because, and this is something we were t- discussing before the podcast, here as we sit in January of 2017, it is now less than eight months till we will be in the same place in Helsinki in Finland at the Mesakusis Convention Center, I think it is. I believe it is. Here to, to be immortalized as the meniscus, because that's shorter and easier to say. I knew you were going to do that. I was going to do that. I did that. Yeah. And so we're all going to meet out, out, out at the meniscus and have a high old time. One thing we might do if we have time is get somebody from the Helsinki Convention Committee to come onto the podcast and have a chat with us for our listeners to help. Uh, how would I put it? to help explain how this year's convention is going to unfold, because it is somewhat different from almost any other Worldcon that I've attended. Now, there are many, many, many that have, you know, I've not attended, and probably, in fact, the person we should get onto the podcast is Bob Silverberg to talk about it, since he's been to, like, every single world you know, Worldcon of uh, yeah, all time. Is- but I think this is the first time where really almost everybody attending the convention is going to be staying about a half hour away from it. So there's going to be a lot of commuting back and forth to the convention. So it's interesting to try and work out where in the uh, disparate space that is downtown Helsinki your best uh, uh, be, you know, 
you mm. just said your best advantage where you're going to be able to meet up with people. Because it sounds like Helsinki itself is a fantastic place. Sounds great. I think it is. I think, I think one of the things to keep in mind, I don't have a sense of the geographical size of it. But as a city, it's, it's, it's not nearly as large as London. So we're not dealing with that kind of complicated transportation. And we're dealing with Finnish efficiency in technology, which is legendary, of course. And I suspect the trams will be absolutely delightful. And we should mention for people who are worried about that, that apparently the convention committee is getting free tram passes for all of us. Oh, fantastic. You're a member. So it's not going to cost you anything to go back and forth. So, yeah, I mean, the, the way I see it, I mean, I don't, uh, we were talking about, I think I'll have busy days out at the convention center and then back in downtown Helsinki to enjoy dinners and bars and chats and podcasts and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably be, you know, we will, we will, in fact, we have volunteered and been accepted, so I think it's fair to say we will once again appear live at the, um, at, 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 at Worldcon, do, do a live podcast, which should be fun, uh, so that our, our dwindling but faithful audience can, can come see us. And that should be fun. And the other thing that ties in with all of this, of course, is that the mo- most recent major activity from our friends at Helsinki has been the opening of voting for, well, nominating for the Hugo Awards. And this is where I, this is the time of the year where I get envious of you. <laughs> um, because I can, I've, I've, I've gone through and I've done about half my ballot. One of, one of the nicest things, and I don't know when this began, but years and years ago, the idea that you could go in and change your ballot and add things to it until the deadline was a really nice thing. I remember once voting for the Hugo where you just had to do yeah. your ballot and that. The reason I envy you is that I can think of uh, novels, certainly I can think of podcasts to nominate, I can think of nonfiction works to nominate, I can think of um, novellas, because I read a fair number of novellas. But you've been reading intensely in short fiction all year, and those categories of novelettes, again, a term that means almost nothing outside the science fiction world, mind you, novelettes and short stories, I have read things that I liked. I've read things in some of your anthologies that I've liked, but I know I have not read anything like a representative sampling of the short fiction published during the year. Fair enough. I mean, I guess to sort of step back for a second, one, I would agree with you that the, uh, the, the process for, for nominating for the Hugos is much more flexible than it ever has been. Uh, and actually, I think this year's is possibly the best single experience I've had nominating for Hugos. And if you, if you are a member of the World Science Fiction Society, if you were a member of last year's convention, this year's convention, next year's convention, you can nominate. I encourage you to do so. I know Gary does as well. Mm-hmm. Putting words in your mouth. Um, and it's really painless. You've got a URL to go to. Uh, you don't really have to log in at all or, or remember a password, and you can just change it and then come back and then change it and come back. Yeah. And I've been tinkering with mine for about a week and a half or two weeks. I'm chipping things off. I'm adding things on. I'm going around sort of going, oh, well, those are the, there are my five you know, best novels of the year, and then going, well, maybe not that one, and maybe this one should be added in, and enjoying that. I found that really <laughs> – Actually, what I have to say is this is the most enjoyable experience that I've had nominating for the Hugos in probably f- 10 years. Really? Okay, simply because you have that private email, basically no. you just log in. No, that's not No, I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, 
from a strictly personal uh, perspective, I've been out of the actual nominating process, the, the, you know, being eligible, well, being on ballots for a couple of years now. So I'm feeling mm. much more relaxed about the whole process. I'm not actually you know, integrally involved. And then the whole puppy thing is beginning to just fade into the background, in my opinion. It feels less immediate, less impactful. They've changed the rules. And mm. so I don't feel as bothered by that as I have in the past. And I just feel this for the first time in some time, I don't feel like I've got a stake in it. So I can just sit around as a reader and go, hey, I love that book. I love this book. I love that book. That one deserves to be nominated. Hey, what about this other one? And you know, get them on, onto my ballot. And because I suppose it's a flexible thing, I can sit there and have my top five things in every category. And I almost, I don't have five in every category right now, but I've got five in many categories. Uh -huh. And what I can do is that I can come back and nobody's looking over my shoulder when I sit there and debate whether I want to add a particular book to the list or story or no, artist no. or editor or whatever it might be. But for somebody like myself, I'm, I'm asking advice on behalf of others uh, and I'm sure there are many others like ourselves. Uh, I My idea of the best science fiction of the year is something that I triangulate when the best year's best anthologies come out. When yours comes out and Gardner's comes out and uh, we, we, we get the, um, well, all the others, I guess. Well, okay, then. Um, let, me, let me give you my triangulated view, or my, my view on a triangulated process, maybe. On how to not how to look for short fiction to consider, given that none of mm -hmm. the year's best will be out before the exactly before the, 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 the no nominating closes, all of the tables of contents for all of the year's bests have been announced. It is a simple matter to tabulate them. I would be surprised if they've not been tabulated somewhere online. Uh, as of about ten days from now, I think. The Locus recommended reading list will be public online on the Locus website at www.locusmag.com. Right. And between that Locus recommended reading list and those year's best tables of contents, you'll have a pretty good guide. Uh, I can also say that it's worth looking at the recommendations of Charles Pacer over at his Quick Sips site. It's very enthusiastic and exclamationy and uh, stuff, but it's still interesting reading. Mm -hmm. And I think there are also good recommendations at rocketstackrank.com. If that's your, I mean, it tends to be a more traditional SF kind of thing, but that's there. But is, is your real question, so Jonathan, what are you nominating? I wasn't actually going to uh, ask you that, but if you're volunteering the information, I would be delighted to hear. Let me put it this way. I've, I've put together a short list of more than five titles. I put together, uh, yeah, well, for, for novella, I, you know, I'd list probably about 20 novellas, and I'll name four that aren't necessarily on my final ballot that I strongly recommend. Okay. Uh, I strongly recommend The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow by Kids Johnson. I do have a conflict of interest. She's both a friend and I commissioned and edited the story, but it still stands out to me as one of the very best novellas of the year. Uh, that was the, that was my first choice, as a matter of fact, on my ballot. I think I have two. Yeah. I strongly recommend The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, mm -hmm. uh, which is a really powerful piece of writing. A One of these, if you like, post-Lovecraftian Cthulhu stories. I 
was very impressed by The Iron Tactician by Alistair Reynolds, a novella published by Newcom Press, and I think it's going to be in the Dozois and the Neil Clark years best next year, or this year. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very strong story set in his Merlin's Gun universe. I also would very strongly recommend Pirate Utopia by Bruce Sterling, which I think is terrific. I really liked it from Tachyon. And the final one of the five from my long list that I'll mention was A Taste of Honey by Kaya Shante Wilson. Uh, I realize that that list is very heavy on Tor.com novellas, but they really did have a pretty extraordinary year. For, well, okay, that's... Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, what you're I, saying. What I was basing my list on was what I'd read from Tor.com, and uh, pretty much everything you've mentioned is something I had in mind. Now, look, there are some very strong novellas elsewhere. I mean, as I say, the uh, Alistair Reynolds was from Newcon. There were some strong novellas from, from PS Publishing by Deborah B. and Cotty and others. There were some strong novellas in Asimov's and in Analog. But these are the ones I happen to like best. For novelette, now this is the the the, uh, the category that puzzles people or irritates people or whatever else. It is for stories that are between 7,500 and 17,500 words long. Now, there's a little bit of compromise, but I'll start off by saying I love The Future is Blue by Catherine M. Valente. It's in, I think, three or four years bests. It was originally published in My Own Drowned World, so take that with a pinch of salt, if you will. But the voice, the way that she combined the playfulness of her uh, Girl Who Navigated, Circumnavigated Fairyland books with a dystopian climate change background was powerful and really, really interesting. I also loved Spinning Silver uh, by Naomi Novik. It came from The Starlit Wood, which was the best original anthology of last year, pretty much hands down, and is very much in the same mode as her multiple award-winning novel from last year. I also loved The Visitor from Torred, a powerful piece of science fiction by Ian R. McLeod. It came from Asimov's. Touring with the Alien by Carolyn Ives Gilman, which is in a multiple use best, came from Clark's World, and The Art of Space Travel by Nina Allen, which was published at Tor.com, and is terrific. All those five novellas are, or five novelettes are well worth your time um, and well worth seeking out. One of the things that's new this year, of course, is the Hugo Award for the best series. Ah. And I don't know how to approach that. Let me, let me ask you what you're doing. And first of all, um, can we uh, let me let me let me suggest two possibilities for this, and this is the way I think people are likely to look at it. One is to find an ongoing series that you think is terrific. As a matter of fact, uh, Nora Jemison has a series, and she's certainly going to be, I think, a candidate for the Hugo for Best Novel. So, do you do you choose a series which is ongoing? Do you, do you choose something like James S. A. Corey? Not that. Not that there's anything new this year. I don't know if there is. There's maybe a short story. Or do you use this as an opportunity to honor some past series which you've loved? If somebody had written, let's say, hypothetically, a Hobbit story this year, uh, does that mean you can vote for the entire Lord of the Rings series? In other words, do you go for historical or do you go for contemporary with this category? 
I think it's a personal call. I mean, we did plumb the depths of this category a little bit uh, last year. But just as a refresher for anybody who hasn't started to, to vote, basically the series has to comprise at least three volumes of at least a quarter of a million words total by the end of this year, and at least one item in that series has to be nominated. I, I suspect that we will see people nominating old favorite series that have had a uh, an installment during the year. Mm. A really good example of that is the Vrakosigan universe from Lois McMaster Bujold. Depending on whether mm. you believe uh, Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen was a 2016 book or not, I don't. I think it's a 2015 book. But if you think it's a 2016 book, then you might consider that. I actually think that, tw- that Gentleman Joel is maybe the weakest of all the Vrakosigan books. And this comes to the position I have taken. I am only going to nominate current series. Mm-hmm. I'm only going to nominate series that where the, where the most recent vol- volume is a volume that I think is award-worthy in its own right. Ah, that's an interesting approach. Now, this is not written into the rules. There is no reason mm-hmm. anybody else should follow this or consider it a reasonable kind of ca- tactic. I'm not recommending it to anybody else. I'm just saying when I try and winnow out the wall of series, because, I mean, honestly, just about anything is is eligible. Harry Potter is eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is Star Wars. So is the Marvel Cinematic Universe just about, or whatever. You know. or the Star Trek universe is eligible. And yeah. blah, blah. Okay. But, you know, as I say, for me, I, I would have nominated the Rokosigan universe if I thought The Gentleman Joel was a strong novel. I will nominate the Praxis slash Dread Empire's Fall series from Walter John Williams, because I think Impersonations is a really strong story. I will mm. nominate Fractured Europe by Dave Hutchinson because I think Europe in Winter is a really strong book. I will nominate Old Kingdom by Garth Nix because I think Golden Hand is a really strong book. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a personal call, but that, that's how I'm taking it at the moment. I honestly expect to see older series ultimately overwhelm everything. I would be unsurprised to see... Let me think. What would I be unsurprised to see? I'd be unsurprised to see June there. I'd be hmm. unsurprised to see Brandon Sanderson's big series that's ongoing at the moment. I'd be unsurprised to see Song of Ice and Fire because I think there was, I mean, someone's, I think, was making the case that there were a couple of chapters of it were published during the year or something. And Harry Potter probably as well. Yeah, because it had the, the Cursed Child. So, you know, yeah. those are the sort of things that I expect to see. But I, I hope that people will range a little bit more widely. And I actually really personally hope that people will focus on more contemporary stuff. That's just I hope so, too, because I, I, I think that's really the intention. There was a, years ago, I mean, decades ago, there was, I think, a special Hugo category for one year only, a best series of all time. And as I recall, Asimov's Foundation series won that. Uh, and that was, that may not have been an official Hugo Award, but it was voted on by the World Science Fiction Convention. And that was essentially a nostalgia award. And uh, And the world of series and, as you mentioned, the u- what they call a universe now, is so much more complicated that I'd, uh, it, it seems pointless to, to recognize Star Wars or Star Trek or even Harry Potter, for that matter, because is it an award for the best universe created over a period of time by multiple creators or a series in the sense of a single author writing a series of Con- connected narratives in some way. I'm looking at a book I got to review uh, 
many months ago. It's a big, thick sort of gift book called Sci-Fi Chronicles. And one of my pet peeves is if I see sci-fi in the title of anything, I'm suspicious. And I was suspicious. It's a delightful book full of pictures and that sort of thing. But when you look up something like Frankenstein, it talks about the Frankenstein universe, of which Mary Shelley isn't even a member. She doesn't even get, you know, she, she barely gets on stage in this. It's, 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 it's a movie franchise. When you talk about the Blade Runner universe, it turns out between gaming and, and, and a few sequels by Jeter and others, it's, it's way beyond anything Philip K. Dick ever thought of. So my interpretation, which is probably a little bit similar to yours, is that this is an award for a series of fictional works, if not by a single author, at least clearly in a connected series invented by that author, as opposed to an award for the best created universe. Yes, I mean, I would tend to, I would tend to prejudice or preference, and preference maybe is the way to, the word. I would tend to preference series that are by a single hand or hands. You know, if Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell wrote a new Moten God's Eye story, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. When Kevin Anderson writes a new Dune story, I'm less engaged by that as an idea, as something that I would want to, you know, reward in this category. And that's not to pick on Kevin. It's just simply, you know, somebody else continuing that exist- that, that series. You know, if let, let, let's say, you know, last year someone had written a new Narnia book, I wouldn't look at that yeah. as, as a way to get Narnia back on the ballot because I wanted to honor Narnia. And I think that's the thing that can happen, that people will say, well, I really want to honor June. How can you possibly have a best series, Hugo, when June wasn't eligible? Frank Herbert's work was one of the primary works in, our, in the history of our mm. field. Here's how we can recognize it once again. And I think that's an honorable sentiment, but I don't think it's in the best interest of the award. Now, this award's going to continue for four years. Right. Mm. This year's is not an official Hugo. It's the Hugo that the convention each year can choose to award, but it previews what will then be the official trial of the of the category under the same rules. I think uh, in the next three years. So, for example, this year Nora Jemison series is not eligible. You know the mm. the uh, Obelisk Gate, those ones. They they will be eligible next year though. Because she'll have completed this trilogy, there'll be three volumes, which is the rule, and I think right. that then becomes something that really should be considered quite seriously for a Best Series Award. It's excellent. It's amongst the best work of the field. Uh, has been of late. It's been nominated for major awards, won major awards, and it's a complete series by a contemporary writer. That's really attractive. These old, these mm. older things, I don't know. No, I'm not really taken, I, I, not, I, I, not taken I, I, by I, it. Well, you, you mentioned Lois McMaster Bujold, and another name that comes to mind, I believe there was a Terry Pratchett title out in 2016. Um, and, you know, it seems to me, apart from the, the tragic loss of Terry Pratchett, which is certainly going to affect some people's votes on that, that Discworld is one of the great series in the history of fantasy. Uh, and never really, uh, I've not read all of them, but I've, I've never been disappointed in one, but that's clearly honoring uh, a writer's work over a, over a career, really, and, the, and they're they're all connected. They're not necessarily narratively connected, but many of them are, I gather. So that I can understand. The idea of rec- in other words, the idea is recognition of a of an ongoing series, recognition of somebody's creation, rather than reclamation of some favorite thing you had in the past that you think deserves you deserves a Hugo because 
Star Wars never got a Hugo novel award and isn't likely to get one, but we can sneak it in here because there are so many Star Wars novels. And look, you know, people have to make their own judgments. The rules are simple and straightforward. They're clear. It's for a best mm-hmm. series. There have to be at least three items in it. It has to be at least a quarter of a million words of, of fiction or whatever. And so, I mean, have at it and let's see what the community feels. I'm not convinced we need this award at all. I'm, I'm not actually completely on board with it, period. But I'm willing to give it a go. And I feel like the best way to, 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 uh, to do that is to nominate contemporary work. Well, the categories are, 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 are a reason for contention every year. And I think it's interesting. And I think the debate is a healthy one to have the YA category, for example is an interesting question. Uh, should it exist? Uh, sh- does it make any sense? Does it make sense that there are no categories for anthologies and collections, uh, which seem to me to be major contributions to the field? I depend on... I. Some of my favorite reading are short story collections from individual authors and anthologies. Uh, and I know this is a getting into self-interest on your part, but I've always thought it's very strange that there... Considering how many anthologies there have been, some of which are major, major works, the amount of work that Anne and Jeff Vandermeer put in on the big book of science fiction is daunting, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Absolutely and A true. book that size, a book with that much work behind it, and a book with that much research behind it, doesn't fit in any, any category. No, it does not. And that, I mean, I mean, to some degree, that's just how it is, and that's based on this theory of double eligibility, I think. You know, they don't like things to be able to, rec- be, be able to be recognized in one category and another. So if, so if a work of individuals, short fiction is eligible in three categories or whatever, then they don't think there should be some other compilation of it. Now, that then asks about the logic of the series, Hugo, itself. And some, I guess the reason we don't have yeah. them is not enough people feel passionately about it, so they don't go out and argue the point, you know. I mean, look, it's, 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 it's been a busy, it's, it's going to be interesting what people do. You and I have both had busy years. We recorded 40 podcasts. You mm-hmm. did your, um, uh, your, 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 your lecture series. Um, I, you know, I edited a novel, a couple of novelettes, uh, a couple of a collection of short stories, a couple of anthologies, a uh, bunch of reviews, all that other kind of stuff. So we're busy. So there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, sort of sits all over the place as well for us. Well, it's true. I mean, there are categories, and it's 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 something which I gather uh, veteran fans have been arguing about since they've been fans. Are, are these the right categories? Are they the wrong categories? There are categories that seem to me to be omissions. I think anthologies and collections are omissions. There are categories that seem to me to be uh, complete catch-alls. Best related work could be almost anything. Yep. From art books. To, uh, to, to non-fiction books, to memoirs, to books of essays, to blog posts. Um, it's, it's a category in which things are, are competing against other things that have nothing in common with them other than they can't fit into another category. Well, let me throw something back at you, Gary, because you said to me earlier in this conversation, you said, look, you read a lot more short fiction than I do, so you're able to uh, recommend short fiction we should look at. Well, you read a lot more nonfiction than I do, Gary. You keep track of the kind of things that are eligible for best-related work much better than I do. What do you see as being of interest in play for best-related work this year? What is almost certainly going to be nominated and get the largest number of nominations is Neil Gaiman's View from the Cheap Seats. Uh, 
which is a collection of sometimes very insightful, it's Neil Gaiman, he's enjoyable, he's entertaining, he's knowledgeable, he's wise. It's largely occasional pieces and it's largely speeches. There's a collection from Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, which again, tends to be a lot of her reviews from The Guardian and some speeches. Uh, and it's Ursula Le Guin, it's full of wisdom, it's full of smarts, it's something you can't help but admire. Uh, and then against that, you might have uh, an academic study of um, Octavia Butler by Jerry Canavan or of Alfred Bester. Those are things that enter my conflict of interest because they're both part of the University of Illinois series that I'm part of. Uh, I think with an area like this, and then you probably have art books. Charles Vest, I think, has a wonderful art book out this past year. Um, all of these things kind of fall together in categories in which you can't compare them with each other. And what I've said to many of my friends, I've said to myself when I've been nominated in, in, in an area where I have no chance of winning is, for a relatively small circulation work of nonfiction, if you're not Gaiman or Le Guin, being nonfiction, yeah. um, the, the Beckham Press, Paul Kincaid, Paul Kincaid did not have a book of essays out this year, but he did, I think, the year before. Um, I've had books from very small presses. Nonfiction tends to get much larger circulation, and if you look at the actual Hugo voting, tends to get many fewer votes than anything else at the nominating stage. Once it goes from the nominating stage to the voting stage, then if you have a celebrity, if you have anything connected to Neil Gaiman or a book about George R. R. Martin's world or a book of Le Guin's essays, uh, they're going to dominate simply because probably of name recognition. So you believe that, say, Words Are More Matter, the Ursula Le Guin book from Small Beer, and the mm -hmm. views from the Sheep Seats by uh, Neil Gaiman are shoe-ins to make the final ballot? I think the shoe-ins to make the final ballot. Interesting. I mean, you've not mentioned my favorite work of academic nonfiction from 2016, actually, uh, which was a Mike Ashley book from Liverpool University, Science Fiction Rebels, the story of the SF magazines from 1981 to 1990, which is a really interesting, well, contains within it a really interesting history of mm -hmm. the magazines in the 1980s, a time when I came into the field and was really actively reading everything for the first time. And I think it's a great and highly recommended uh, book. It's all of his entire history, and, and you mentioned something that's, that's interesting. I don't remember if his earlier volumes in this series have been nominated, but this is a volume that approaches the entry-level reading of people like yourself. A lot of people are going to know the fiction he's talking about the 1980s, where the early he started with 1926. This is what the fourth volume in his series, or maybe the fifth. I'm not sure, uh, and it's an astonishing achievement in that he has read all the stuff. He's basically read every issue of every magazine. Uh, yes. Which, Brave man. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and he's read it with, with some kind of balance and good judgment, it seems yeah. to me. So, yeah, that should be added as well. But, again, it does come from Liverpool University Press. It's not widely familiar to a lot of people. If it makes the ballot, it might have a chance of, of yeah. winning. But, um, you know. When Adam Roberts had a revised edition of his history of science fiction during the year. Um, Would that be sufficiently I, new to uh, be, be eligible? I don't know. I don't know whether a revised edition is eligible or not. The only precedent I can think would be to look up and find whether Brian Williams, Brian Aldous's uh, 
trillion year spree was nominated after he had, I think, maybe won the Hugo for billion year spree. Yeah. Some years. I think it was. Um, the other book, of course, that occurs to me is the, the Merrill Theory of Literary Criticism by Judith Merrill from Aqueduct. And again, it's 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 an odd kind of collection of reviews. It's it's it, occasional pieces, but occasional pieces by a very important editor and critic in the field. I found it fascinating. I think people who are interested in that part of science fiction history will find it fascinating. Um, but did it get enough circulation? And are there enough people who care about who Judy Merrill was and what she did uh, to 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 get it either nominated or or um, Possibly victory? I don't think so. Nomination? I would hope so. Now, of course, nominations close on the 17th of March, Pacific mm-hmm. Daylight Time at midnight, which means that uh, people have, oh, what about seven weeks, I suppose, to, to get their nominations in, which is plenty of time. I would imagine yeah. there will be, after that, then the Hugo uh, packet will come out. And, of course, between the 17th of March and the first week of April, you can then start, you know, sort of that <laughs> that awkward period where people who are who feel they may be nominees will sit around waiting to see if emails get sent out. And that's going to be amusing in and of itself. It's always amusing because every year, and you can attest to this as well as I can, every year it's different. Mm-hmm. Some Some years they lose your email address or they use the wrong phone number uh, or... Uh, I wasn't even thinking about it from that perspective I mean, of being a nominee because, you know, mm-hmm. you and I have been off the ballot for a couple of years. I mean, look, we may come back on. Who knows? And if we do, that'll be wonderful. But we, we uh, I can talk about it with some distance and say it's amusing because what you see is all the subtweeting and the vague booking. You know, someone in probably in the first couple of – this is how, how you, you guess what's happening without ever in, having any insider knowledge. Um, you'll see that someone like, say, Charlie Anders, right, who wrote a fantastic book yeah. last year, All the Birds in the Sky, and which could very well be up for the Hugo in 2017, and I think would be a, a worthy nominee. She'll say something in the first week of April like, great news, but can't say anything right now. Or, ooh, surprise email. Now, the truth is that surprise email could be that, you know, they just delivered an unexpected load of compost to her, her garden. Absolutely. I mean, people do that. My, my only, my only request, my only please people who are possibly in this category of possibly getting a nomination, don't tweet anything with the word secret spelled S-E-K-R-I-T. <laughs> the other one would be the, I, you know, I wasn't going to go to Helsinki, but I think I better start looking into getting tickets. That'll be the next one. Exactly right. <laughs> And it's kind of actually my my thing there is I mean and those that subtweeting if you watch it is about seventy percent accurate so it's just kind of fun I I get a chuckle out of watching it I find I think it's harmless and 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 amusing like, can I tell you just quickly though before we finish on the Hugo's uh-huh. the most difficult category of two thousand and sixteen to work out best dramatic presentation short form oh, that's always difficult for me but there are a lot of things this year that are possibilities. Um, Remember that it's for one episode, They're, not for a series. Right. And that's my problem because Mine too. Uh, one thing I've started doing, and you hardly got me started doing this, is binge watching. So I don't think of a series like Travelers, which is, was an mm. interesting time series. Uh, episode by episode, it didn't really amount to much, but it was a nice six or eight or 12 episodes. Stranger Things is probably going to dominate that category. But why pick out one episode? of a serial story. 
Um, I think I, well, that's that's why, of course, you can choose to put it up for long form. Mm. You know, and so, for example, I would probably tend to nominate Luke Cage, Marvel's Luke Cage, as a long form thing rather than break out an individual episode. However, yeah. Neil Harrison, a friend of the podcast, a very shy friend of the podcast, shy doesn't want to come on the on the podcast. That's all right. Shy Neil, here heretofore known as Shy Neil. Shy Neil mentioned uh, Post of Interest season five, uh, and there's an episode there, six thousand seven hundred and forty-one, which I think is w- very worthy and is on my ballot. It's a, an episode where one of the characters finds themselves endlessly looping through a virtual reality possibility series of events. And it's very powerful. My other favorite, actually, and I do recommend it very strongly, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what Thor and Hulk were ju- doing during Captain America Civil War, a three-and-a-half-minute short produced to promote Thor Ragnarok uh, that tells what Thor was doing when he was down under in Australia uh, hanging out with his friend Darren. Definitely Ooh. a worthy nominee. And again, the question comes up how you find those things. I guess if you find like one episode of Person of Interest, which I gather is over now, mm. uh, I guess you just have to go on the web and look through episodes because I don't even know the titles of episodes of things I've enjoyed. I, I had to look it up. It's like I I really loved, and it may not be to your taste, but I loved a cr- crossover episode of Supergirl. There's an episode, World's Finest, and it's the first episode where the Supergirl character and the Flash character are in the same location. And it's charming and funny and delightful. And I nominated it, but I did have to go looking it up because I knew it as, you know, that episode rather than the specific one that it was. Uh, and I'm sure that, that, I mean, there's plenty. I've, I've watched some great science fiction television or genre television in 2016, whether it was Mr. Robot, whether it was, pardon me, Person of Interest, whether it was Stranger Things, whether it was, frankly, Supergirl or Lucifer or The Flash or whatever else. And so picking stuff out of that is hard. I know, and and picking out individual episodes is hard as well. I I frankly don't give much thought to either of the dramatic things because uh, of all the Locus Locus Awards, that's another issue, of all the Hugo Awards, they seem to me to be the most... um, hanging on your coattails kind of thing. Would you please pay attention to us? I mean, when Steven Spielberg wins a Hugo Award, I don't think he even finds out about it. Yet. <laughs> um, I, I don't think... Occasionally there'll be somebody... Uh, Chuck Lorre, apparently, who does The Big Bang Theory, is an actual fan. There are people out there who pay attention to these things. But by and large, giving an award to a Hollywood production that doesn't even know what the Hugos are or to a major film... Arrival was a terrific science fiction. Mm. There are plenty of reasons to take exception to it. Uh, but I suspect that if it were to win a Hugo Award, it would reflect well on Ted Chang, and it did do a better job of representing Ted Chang's story than I thought it would. So mm. so I want that because it's recognizing a writer in our field who is actually somebody who's part of this world. Yeah. Recognizing Rogue One, as much fun as it was, doesn't mean anything to them. Not especially, no. And they're not going to send, you know, if you, re- if you nominate Moana, they're not going to send Lin-Manuel Miranda to pick it up. So no. go with what you want. I will say, what, I mean, we're, we're circling, I'm circling back to Hugo, so I'm going to end up and say that John W. Campbell Award, there is a website to go and see authors who are eligible. My personal, okay. my personal crusade for this year is Kelly Robson. I think she should win the Campbell Award. 
There's some other great people who could win, Ada Palmer, Natasha Pulley, Cassandra Kaur, some other people, but, but Kelly's my, my big pick for the year. And Kelly, a former guest on our podcast. Uh, for, yes. Yes, a once in a future guest. And the other thing I'd mention just quickly since it came out yesterday is the very first, and this is how we know we're in awards season, the first awards ballot of the year is out, Gary. Those, those crazy kids at the, at the Philip K. Dick Award yesterday put, put out their, their oh, ballot. Yes, they did. This is for the somewhat niche sounding distinguished science fiction published in a paperback original in the United States during the previous year. So if you it was. Know what? That's changed. That meaning of that has changed radically from when the award began. Because the Philip K. Dick Award originally was meant to honor paperbacks in the sense of mass market paperbacks. Yes. Because that's what Philip K. Dick published all but two or three of his novels originally. And they've nominated six now, books, and I don't think any of them come from major publishers. No, they don't. But one of them is Eleanor Arneson's Warhat stories, which I was delighted to see on the book. Oh, yeah. And actually, they look like a really interesting book of, uh, sorry, list of, list of books. I mean, I looked at the list just for those who have not seen it. The nominees are Consider by Christy Acevedo from Jollyfish Press, Warhat stories, Transgressive Tales by Aliens by Eleanor, uh, Arneson from Aqueduct, The Mercy Journals by Claudia Casper from Arsenal Pulp Press, Graft by Matt Hill from Angry Robot, On Pronounceable by Susan Durende from Aqueduct, and Super Extra, Extra Grande by Yoss, translated by David Fry from Restless Books. I think that's actually a wing of a major publisher, Restless Books. But the rest I of them are minor, are minor something. But if I'm not mistaken, Yoss may be the first Cuban science fiction book to be nominated for any major award. It could well be, yeah. Though I wouldn't be surprised to see Carlos Hernandez's book show up. This, this coming year. Yeah. Although, actually, Carlos Fernandez, I believe, is a Cuban expatriate book, as are the novels of Diana Chaviano, for example. Mm-hmm. He also actually published in Cuba as a Cuban science fiction book, as I understand, mm-hmm. before it was finally translated. So, but anyway, that's an, it's an interesting list of awards. I think the idea, the point I was making earlier is that so many uh, interesting books and major books, you mentioned Aqueduct, um, as, as, as one example, are published in trade paperback now. Trade paperback has become more like hard hardcover than like mass market paperback in terms of production, distribution, who writes for them, and so forth and so on. So an award which was originally designed to honor kind of the lower tier of writers who couldn't get hardback publication but had to go to mass market, as Philip K. Dick did with Ace Books back in the 1950s, or for that matter, as Ursula K. Le Guin did with Ace Books back in the 1960s, now you have really some major literary works coming out in trade paperbacks, but they're still technically paperbacks. Very true, very true. So the first award, there'll be more more, you know, more shortlists coming out soon. I mean, of course, for the meantime, though, I have to turn my attention to something much more important than any of this, Gary. Which is? Bruce Springsteen. I think that's worthwhile. I noticed that, uh, to get back to the very first comments we were making at the beginning of the podcast, for some reason, which escapes me, Springsteen didn't sing at the inauguration today. I wonder why. Well, I mean, practically it's because he's in Perth, Western Australia right now, Gary. I would have been in Perth, Western Australia had I been able to arrange it <laughs> during this inauguration myself. He played a private uh, concert at the White House and then hopped on his pr- private plane and flew to Perth, and tomorrow night we'll play the first of three near-sold-out shows across the coming week. 
And you're going to be at at least one of them. All of them. All of them. All of them. That's that's a dedicated fan. I admire you. No, no. Dedicated fan are the people who are going to follow him around the country and see all, all of them. I'm just seeing all oh, of the ones okay. in Perth. <laughs> okay, fine. Hey, look, I was going to go to Sydney and uh, go and see him there with our good friend James Bradley, but I, I have to say, sanity prevailed. <laughs> And the knowledge that I'm going to Worldcon and that I might come to San Antonio for World Fantasy, so I had to be a little bit careful with money. Ah, uh, that makes a lot of sense as well. But Bruce is Bruce. Bruce is Bruce. So it'll be, you know, three shows, three to four hours each. And I'm expecting big things from tomorrow night's show because it'll be his first performance of the Trump presidency. And I am confident that that will impact on what he plays. I have no doubt. I have no doubt whatsoever. And then on to, I mean, you, you have ICFA coming up. I was talking to someone who's planning on being there, so that should be jolly hockey sticks. ICFA will be a lot of fun. I'm hoping, we're always hoping to see people we've never seen there before, but uh, well, I've, I've got to, and, and one of the, you just reminded me, one of the things I have to do is finalize a very difficult decision on this year's Crawford Award for the best first fantasy book. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not all on the same page, and we're nearing the deadline, so we're going to have to come up with something soon. Well, good luck. I Thank wish you. I wish you. Luck. I wish you good, good fortune. Nine hours with Bruce. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, we might wind up, and I will talk to you next week about something science fictional, maybe more focused. We, we've now. I think we've done the Hugo's until the ballot comes out. We, we will. I think so. Yeah. So we'll come back. We'll talk about awards later in the year. I think sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll maybe drag our good friend Eliza Trombi onto the podcast, and we will talk about the Locus Recommended Reading List and the labyrinthine and detailed process that it goes into produce that. And we'll talk to, I think, a couple of our friends about various other issues that you and I have talked about off off microphone, and that all should be good. But until then, fare thee well, Gary. I'll talk to you next week. And until then, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. I get to do the ending this week. You even got it right this time. It wasn't even a Codcast or a Coot Street or anything. Well, what did I say the last time? I liked it better the last time, actually. <laughs>